ButcherBox makes it easy and convenient to get the highest quality grass-fed, grass-finished beef, organic free-range chicken, heritage breed pork, and wild-caught seafood without any antibiotics or added hormones delivered straight to your door. For me, I love their ribeye steak with a smoke and reverse sear, their tender belly bacon, which is some of the best uncured bacon on planet Earth. ButcherBox partners with people, small farmers included, that treat their animals in the best possible way and never give any added antibiotics or hormones. When you join, you choose your box and delivery frequency. You can cancel at any time without any penalty, and ButcherBox delivers amazing and fresh meat right to your door in a 100% recyclable box. For a limited time only, get free chicken nuggets for a year and 10% off your first box when you sign up today and use the code WP. That's a 22-ounce bag of gluten-free organic chicken nuggets in every order for a year when you sign up at butcherbox.com forward slash WP and use the code WP. From some of the best elk hunters in the world. Across the canyon, pop up the other side and the wind is right at my back and blows right into it. I cut him off and say, I'm the best one, not you. I love it, man. I feel like I'm super blessed to call myself an elk hunter. To beat them at their game, to get them within that bow range, convincing them that I'm one of them. you got to close that distance really quick on him. And if he's going to engage that much, that's a dead bull. Welcome to Western Contours Podcast. Sharing experiences, providing insight, and looking for solutions to become better hunters. Whether you're chasing bugles over the next ridge, sitting a stand out east, this is about passion. Pursuing our dreams of field, our lifestyle, the betterment of self and community, the enlightenment that comes from those moments spent in God's creation. Through these conversations, I hope you find insight, inspiration, education, and motivation to push beyond your limits. All right. Uh, Well, it's been a while. Uh, but it hasn't been a while because we just talked <laughs> last week. But welcome, man, on with uh, James Nash. How you doing, my brother? Thank you, sir. I'm good. I'm I'm doing great. You know, I just uh, my mom's partner has a cabin up here in the mountains, and we've been getting a lot of snow, a lot of snow this year, and it's kind of had a little bit of a chance to warm up above freezing, and then it, it froze hard again. So the snow we've got is going to be here until like April at this point. So we took uh, took the snowmobiles this afternoon and ran up there, and uh, he thought it would take about an hour to shovel off the roof to keep it from collapsing, you know. And uh, it ended up taking three hours, and uh, shoveling is a special kind of labor, as you know, like there, it, it's, it's just, it hits different. Um, so yeah, we, we got the roof all cleared off, rode the sleds back out, um, got home and, uh, yeah, just kind of warming up and, and I'm happy. I'm happy. It doesn't help when that, uh, when that snow hits that freeze and then it snows a little bit more and you know, that, that, that freeze thaw cycle. And it just seems like it makes it that much heavier, man. Yeah. And it just kind of laminates and, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Snow is, is a fascinating substance and there's so many different forms that it can take. And I think there's, you know, the, the weird saying about how many words Eskimos have for snow, but there are a lot of different qualities that, that snow can take on. 
and uh, all of them require their own type of mobility or labor or whatever. It's just part of living in the mountains. Yeah, what would I know about snow, huh? <laughs> yeah, but while while we were out there, I saw um, a fish and game helicopter uh, flying, and I'm assuming it was fish and game. Nobody else really has any business flying out there. But I was making some assumptions about what they're doing. Usually, when they're flying wildlife surveys, they'll fly transects. So to keep it fair, from one year to the next, they'll fly the same routes and try and do it on the same day. Of course, weather dictates that a little bit, but um, if they're flying the same route, same day, same, same time of day, then whatever wildlife they see is a good representation and gives them a little bit of control from one year to the next. But these guys were really cherry picking and they're flying ridges. And uh, it seemed like they were looking for wolves um, would be my guess. Like they had some, some color data that told them that there are wolves in that area, which there typically are. Um, I had a wolf kill, uh, kill a white-tailed deer, you know, like 300 yards from my place. I think it was last week. Um, and I only found, found one wolf track, but man, it was right next to my house. And, you know, I live out, out of town on this ranch and my dogs are always running around at night. It, it kind of worries me a little bit because, uh, if it's a pack of wolves and my lab goes out there and tries to get in a brawl with him because he doesn't know any better and they'll, they'll kill him before I even have a chance to load a rifle. That whole topic and issue seems to be that snowball man, just gaining momentum, you know, across, across the West. It, uh, it's getting a little scary and we have lessons learned that it, that it seems that we're ignoring and it's, it's an interesting, uh, an interesting dive into where we're at. Yeah. And I, I get it. Like there's very few animals that, that cause an, an emotional reaction of in one direction or, or another, the way that a wolf does um, bears and mountain lions to an extent as far as North American mammals. But, um, but the wolf really, that triggers something in just about everybody, whether they've had any firsthand experience with them or not. And, and because there is emotions on every side of it, it makes it hard to, to think clearly about the subject and to analyze data and to trust data, to find data that, that challenges what you already believe. And that's probably the most important kind. It's like, if you can find scientific evidence that, that challenges what you believe, um, and you come out of that on the other side and still believe in the same thing, well, then you've got a really strong position. But if you're not looking for something to challenge your beliefs, then you're just looking for stuff to reinforce what you already believe. And a lot of times that ends up being bad information, regardless what the subject is. That's, that's a fact. So we've, we, we've touched on two things that, that, in my opinion, fall right into line um, with our basis for the conversation, man. And that, and I wanted to kind of pick your brain and, and get into some elk biology and elk behavior and talk about, you know, patterns and, and what you see, uh, you know, where you're hunting and where you're guiding and on the ranch there. And I know you have some extensive history, man, with, you know, fecal data and things like that. And I'm, I'm super interested in, in hearing that, but also put more so putting the information out because a lot of what we do, 
when we talk elk hunting is we we want to we want to call and we want to know what bench they're on right and there's three these three primary factors which you know they're primary factors for a reason um but there's so there's all these little nuances that go into all that so um you know we talked about the wolf and you know and and the snow um so with that amount of snow how's that how do you think that's going to affect uh or how does that affect our herds and, and the elk, um, you know, when we're out there chasing them September, you know, through November. It's an interesting question. And at this stage in the winter, uh, we're still in January. It's hard to know because they can carry through some really hard snow for, for quite a while, even if they can't really get to, to food this time of year, um, elk in, in wintry places where they can't necessarily get down to grasses are going to rely a lot on woody debris for their diet and they're going to consume a lot of lichen and that's that black um, sort of dark olive moss that's hanging off trees that's a pure carbohydrate so that's going to be a hundred percent carbohydrate that's 97 percent digestible uh, is you know what one wild wildlife biologist told me if i'm remembering those those stats right so it's similar to like if you were to squirt a bunch of honey in your mouth, like it's instant energy and that can help them move around. Um, they're getting fiber. They're getting a lot of fiber from the woody debris and any place that they can find leaves from deciduous trees or from brush, there's a lot of protein value in those leaves. So you can see protein um, as high as like 27%, 28%, extraordinarily high. So if you were to compare that to like the very fanciest alfalfa out there, that's, that's higher than that alfalfa as far as protein quality. So, um, if you think about an elk's nutritional requirements, it really boils down to, um, to protein and fiber. It, if you want to simplify it as much as possible. So they're getting fiber from those grasses that are cured out. Um, and then they're getting their protein from those leaves and more fiber from, from wood. What we're seeing right now, even though like there's six feet of snow in my yard, um, on the south facing aspects, the sun has been able to cook that snow off. So what happens, it, even, even if it stays below freezing, if you can get a little bit of sun in the day that can get through the clouds, it hits these rocks and rocks experience something called solar gain. And what that means is that they can, they can absorb heat from the, from the ultraviolet energy that's in that sunlight and they can actually get warmer than the air temperature. And then they'll start to melt the ground around them. And then that ground as it melts and no longer has that white snow barrier to reflect UV off of it, um, then it can begin to melt around. So the south facing aspects, the snow burns off when a little bit of sunlight hits them. It doesn't take very much and it can stay cold and it'll still happen. Really amazing stuff. So what, what I'm seeing right now is that all of the wildlife is focusing on those south aspects because that's where the ground is getting exposed and that's where they can get um that's where they can get to the grass and then the other element that people forget about is water right so here on the six ranch when it gets anywhere close to zero or below zero fahrenheit 
our water freezes, even the moving water, the river, you know, it'll freeze along the edges and it'll just have a, a little channel in the middle. So part of every day is breaking ice for all these different animals to be able to find a place to drink. And it doesn't stay open for very long. So you're out there with a, you know, with like a splitting mole or a big spud bar or something, you know, chopping ice. And as soon as the water splashes, it freezes to you. And, um, it's, it's kind of this big labor of, uh, labor of love uh, and compassion for these animals is, is chopping ice. Elk don't necessarily have to worry about that because they can eat snow. They can get all of their water from eating snow and, some cattle learn how to do that. Some cattle do not. Um, there was one instance where my dad's cattle um, had to go through this big tunnel that went under a highway in order to get to water. And their water was open. But because there was snow, we could tell where the cattle were all the time. And they stayed up on the hill for something like 47 days. Um, just surviving on snow. And that's what the elk are doing. So right now they're doing okay. We've got these South aspects burned off. Um, if these elk are caught in snowy areas um, because there's a crust on the snow, because of this freeze thaw thing that we were talking about, predators can run them down super easy because the lions and the wolves and the coyotes and everything, they can just skim across the top of the snow no problem. Whereas the elk are post holing. So they're really slow. They're breaking through it. And whenever you get that situation where the ungulates are breaking through the crust and the predators are staying on top, man, it's easy pickings. Um, so my expectation for this year is that we're going to have um, higher calf mortality than we have in the previous three years, which have been relatively mild winters. And that really won't see effects until a few years down the road, unless you're in a place that has a lot of predation from wolves and bears. And uh, in those cases, it it's going to make it seem like there's a lot fewer elk this year because there are going to be fewer elk in those areas. As we get into this, let me, let me back it up. And there's probably some, some, definitions and explanations and i'd love for you to touch on them just just briefly unless they require more but as we talk you know about their their feeding habits right there's browse there's graze there's forbs um sedges things hard mass things like that that i think would be worth at least giving a definition of or an example of that way when we touch on it we could refer to it but people are being educated as to what they're eating um and and so elk are ruminants, right? And this is kind of jumping back to what you were saying. So do you, is there any correlation with the cow and the elk being ruminants that help them be able to get their water from that snow? Does that, with the four stomachs, does that have something to do with it or? Yeah, that that's interesting. So yeah, like you said, the, the ruminants mean that they have four stomachs. What that really means to us is that they will eat this, this kind of wolfy, hard to digest food. They'll consume that and they'll spend their energy just getting the mass inside their bodies. And that's when they have to travel around to consume all that mass. And then they'll go lay down someplace where they can really conserve their energy. And they'll actually regurgitate that food and chew it up again. And by doing that, um, by masticating and, and, and breaking those fibers down even more, it 
the next time they swallow it, it can go down deeper into their digestive system and they can absorb more nutrients out of that as a product of it. And, you know, during this process, they've spent less energy than if they had to chew it up enough on the initial bite to be able to swallow it down. As far as them consuming enough snow to get their their requirement of moisture, I don't think that their that their stomach build really has a lot to do with that. Um, but it's an interesting question, and and I don't know the answer to that. I've never come across that. Yeah, that I just just curious, right? As you start delving into this stuff, and you hear something, it's like I wonder if that's why. <laughs> yeah, because there's not yeah there's not many animals that that do that. No, and it's it's hard for us. So if like if if you're if you're a Homo sapiens and you're out and you want to consume snow in order to get all of the water that you need, you're going to have a really hard time because you're going to spend so much energy um, heating that snow until it's a liquid inside your body that it it may be a net loss. So in a survival situation, if you're out in the cold. You really need to melt that snow before you consume it. Um, otherwise, you're risking throwing yourself into hypothermia by cooling off your internal organs too quickly. And and burning burning valuable calories, right? Because yeah, yeah, really important calories, and and your your body will start um, shutting down your your fine motor skills, so like your ability to to grab things. Um, and to feel your feet and to feel um, parts of your face, things that are really important for you to continue improving your situation um, by, say, building a shelter or um, or building a fire, something along those lines. So you you really you need that dexterity to keep yourself alive. But if if you start throwing your body into a situation where it it has to prioritize, so it's going to prioritize your vital organs, and that's a last ditch effort and. Uh, it's kind of a, a short road to a bad place, but you also asked about the different things that the elk are eating. You can think of Forbes as little things with leaves. So like a clover or a piece of alfalfa, um, something like that would be a Forb. If an elk can have access to Forbes, that's all they're going to eat. Okay. If they can get to an alfalfa field they will live in that alfalfa, alfalfa field. Um, and then you've got, of course, grasses, you've got, Everybody knows what grass is. You've got woody debris. Um, you know, that's sometimes literally eating sticks or eating the ends of limbs. If you compare an elk to say a moose, a moose, a moose's diet is going to be, you know, sometimes over 90% woody debris. They can live off willows. And there's, if an elk can get to willows, uh, they will, and they'll enjoy that. And there's some benefit inside the cambium layer. So that's like that little pithy layer between the outer bark and the actual wood. Um, and in that, uh, there, I'm trying to remember the word, um, but it, it, it's like taking a, a Tylenol, right? There's a little bit of a painkiller, anti-inflammatory uh, quality to that cambium layer in willows. But. Yeah. We talk about, you know, browsers, right? That that's they're feeding on leaves, you know, typically it's described or or explained as, you know, they're having to look up to eat, right? Grabbing things over their head and then graze, you know, that's feeding on the grass. Um yep. 
And I think that kind of covers it. And what what's interesting to me, right, is is we try to put specificity everything. And and as I started delving down this road, that's what I wanted to do. Is I wanted to know exactly what elk were eating. Well, then as I'm reading and I'm I'm you know getting on online and I'm looking, and it struck me because you can't really nail it down, but it makes sense because they are probably one of the most diversified animals there is. I mean, they they have adapted to every situation that we've forced them into and in some instances, you know, reintroduced or or put them in. Um, so it's really hard to nail down everything that they're consuming. But what have you seen, you know, with with like your fecal studies and, and fecal samples, what what has been, you know, their primary sources where you're at? And it, it just depends on the time of year. And that's, I guess the time of year that matters the most to us is, is hunting season, right? So in, in the springtime, I guess, if you're a shed hunter, then you kind of want to know what they're eating then. And, and that's all fine and good. But it, what it really comes down to more, more importantly than the species of the plant is the phenological stage of the plant. And what I mean by phenological stage is like, what stage of life is that plant currently in? And it's like, is it before it flowers? Um, is it green? Is it dormant? Things like that. That's really important. So something that has not quite flowered yet is going to tend to be at its, at its peak of nutritional quality. And elk can find that. And it's, it's a little bit more palatable. Um, when, we talk, when we talk about palates, like the inside of their mouth, the top of your roof, the roof of your mouth is called your palate. Um, so how does it actually feel inside their mouth? Does it feel good? Is it soft? Is it easy for them to chew up? Is it less work for them to regurgitate and chew up later on? All these things come into an elk's, you know, behavior about where they decide to spend their time. Um, but yeah, you can just kind of think about the phenological stages of plants in the fall. Most of the grasses are dormant, um, meaning that they no longer have color in them. Um, the roots are maybe still alive, depending on whether it's a perennial or an annual or whatever. Um, but, uh, but most of the grasses are dormant, they're brown. So they can still get fiber from that. But as those leaves on like aspen trees, on nine bark, on elderberries, you know, whatever the, the brushy species is, uh, as those leaves start to turn color a little bit, then their protein value just shoots up. There's some other plants that are called brassicas, and uh, those tend to be more... Um, more stuff that you would see in agriculture, but take turnips, for example, I, I drove past a field tonight that was maybe an 80 acre pasture and it had uh, around a hundred head of whitetail in it. A ridiculous number of whitetail just packed in there. And the reason that they were there is after the crop was taken out of that field, the farmer went back through and they planted turnips and the turnips are a cover, cover crop that aerates the soil. It provides a bunch of organic material to the soil. But as soon as you get a frost, all the sugars that are in the actual bulb and the ground go up into the leaves and everything just comes through and, and eats those leaves as tight as possible because that sugar is that instant good, um, you know, carbohydrate that gives them lots of energy and keeps them warm. 
Um, but now all the leaves are gone and the deer are out there digging that field up so that they can eat the turnip bulbs. And some of those bulbs are huge, you know, they're like bigger than grapefruits. And these deer are out there just chewing on these frozen turnips that they've dug out of the ground with their little hooves. Um, but there are some brassicas that occur uh, naturally as well that, that these animals are going to target in the fall as soon as you start to see a frost. But as, as daylight time changes, um, elk are go- going to experience different f- nutritional qualities from different plants. And I want to bring up an, 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 uh, something that's interesting to me about daylight uh, that I didn't realize until this year, but we... We often talk about how um, the peak of the elk rut is at the fall equinox. But the equinox, as we understand it, is a date where you have an equal amount of daylight and darkness at the equator, right? But I was way up in Alaska when I was getting close to the equinox, and I was looking at my GPS for when there was actually going to be 12 hours of darkness and 12 hours of daylight. And it was like six days later than what was listed as the equinox. So then when I came home, I started looking at it again. Well, it's like four days later here. And I had always felt like the peak rut was actually later than that equinox. And I kind of am, am, hypothesizing at this point or theorizing that that peak rut is when you have 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of darkness, not when the calendar says that it's equinox some other place. I I would agree based on my last two years of watching that and what I saw, right? I think, I think this year was supposed to be like the 17th through the 21st. Right. And, and, same thing, didn't nothing in that time frame. Same thing last yeah. year. It was almost almost the exact same date frame. And it it always seems to come a couple three days after that and it'll run on, at least from what I've seen. Yeah. On on your calendar, it's gonna be the 21st or the 22nd every year. Um, but if you look at you know, a solar table or something like that that'll show you daylight times, uh, you can find out for your latitude where you have 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of darkness. And I kind of think that that's what matters to an elk. It's just a theory. Yeah. We'll, 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 we'll look at the theory, man. It's all, it, it it's all worth exploring, especially if you, yeah. if you want to geek out on this stuff. Right. I and mean, why not? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a lot, uh, there's a lot worse things we could be doing. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm going to have to look at that. I have my journal. My journal this year was pretty crazy. So I'll look, I, I'm not sure how much detail I have in terms of that. I know I was sun up, sun down, um, times. So I might be able to tell that and see if I can pick that out. Um, but that's pretty interesting. Um, so then hard mast, um, you know, acorns, things like that. How, how I haven't seen that, at least the areas that I've, that I've hunted, I haven't seen like, you know, a a lot of, a lot of hard mass acorn crop, things like that. I get it a lot here. If I'm chasing bear, then I'll, you know, I'll find those areas. Um, I know when we get, you know, back East, uh, Kentucky, things like that, they really go after that hard mass stuff. Um, what's, what's your thought there? 
I wish I could tell you more. I've only got to hunt in acorn country once and it was during a year when there weren't any acorns. Um, so I, I would just be lying if I told you anything, cause I don't have any first person experience with it and I haven't researched it enough. Um, and I, I, I try not to talk about stuff that, that I don't know that's a little why, bit about. That's why I'm asking you the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sorry to let you down, but no, I, no I don't know. I don't know. And I don't, at least I have, you know, like I said, I haven't seen that much hard mass crop in the areas that I've been hunting. Um, and that's been, you know, primarily Colorado at this point. Uh, and I can't recall, man, really seeing any acorns last year. Know the area that uh, we were hunting the two years before that there was there's a little here and there, but nothing, nothing that would make me think that that's something they're going after on a regular. But we'll leave that to leave that to somebody who knows. And then uh, yeah, so like I, the, oh, I, I bet if you hooked up a whitetail dude, they could tell you a lot about acorns. Um, I I killed a pig in South Carolina uh, when I was still active duty in the Marine Corps, and it was. Uh, it was one of these hunts that you do with dogs and you end up killing the pig with a knife. And, and that's not like a, like a macho or, or a brutality thing. It's the reality is that the dog is holding, holding on to the, the pig so that you can get up there and you don't want to use a gun because they're thrashing around and it's a lot easier to, to hurt a dog if you're using a gun than you are using a knife. So there's a practicality to it. And, and the, the death to the animal is very, very fast, very, very fast. Um, so it's, it's also a, a, a humane way to do it, but that pig was full of acorns and that's what it had been living on. And to this day, it is the best pork I've ever had. It tasted like it was maple syrup or something like that. It had this sweet nutty taste to the fat and oh my God, it was amazing. Yeah, they, uh, we hunt some of the BLM, uh, in the central coast and, and it backs up some of the, uh, the ag area and that the whole backside of the area that we hunt, man, I mean, the acorn crop there is usually good year to year to year and between the ag fields and the acorns, oh dude, those pigs are so good. And, uh, they get, they get gnarly big up there too. Man, I'm, I've, I've told you this before. I think I, this was maybe one of the first things I ever told you. I'm looking at your your logo back there on the wall behind you. I think that's just one of the best logos in the hunting industry. It is so cool. Has anybody got a, t a tattoo of that yet? All right. Well, I'm going to throw this one out there. If somebody gets a tattoo of of guy's logo, I'll give them a, I'll give them a half day fly fishing trip guided. Oh, heck yeah, yeah. Here on the, here on the Six Ranch. Oh, that, that's the challenge right there. I, I want to see a picture of that, and, and I want to see. I want to see Jonathan Metcalf out here with a, with a Sharpie, you know, like this, I, I can spot a real tattoo. All right. <laughs> <laughs> what about Metcalf? Uh, that day, he's down at the, the shot show right now, running around. Oh man. The old shot show. Yeah. I've got, a, I've got a little bit of FOMO seeing everybody down there and SCI is in town and in, in Las Vegas at the same time. Um, the last time I was at shot was a couple of years ago and, uh, and the other shows that were in town were the concrete convention, the national concrete convention, which had, uh, like 10,000 more people than shot did. And also the, uh, the, the porn awards were going on at the same time. So it's, 
you can kind of look somebody up and down and know what they're there for. Like, are are you a a gun guy, a porn guy, or are you a concrete guy? (laughs) You know, what's funny is I I bet you a lot of the concrete guys were trying to get in the shot too. Yeah, I'm I'm sure. I'm sure. And and shots, it's a cool thing and it's cool to see all these products and, you know, it's really expensive to have a booth there. Um, You know, these bigger booths cost millions of dollars like millions of dollars. Isn't that nuts? And uh, so people are trying really hard to show you these things that they're so passionate about that they've worked on for years. Um, and it's exciting. It's exciting to see the, the fruit of all this labor and, you know, the absolute leading edge of what's going on in the hunting and shooting and outdoor world. Um, it's fun. If you ever get a chance to go, I, I encourage people to go, but uh yeah, I'm, I'm missing out on it a little bit. That's okay. Um, I've got more shows coming up. Yeah, I was, uh, I was actually planning on going. And then, you know, with this, with our uh, move, it was just like, okay, I got Hunt Expo coming. I'll just worry about that and focus on, you know, home. I guess it's, it's more important. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and Hunt, Hunt Expo is great. Uh, the Portland Sportsman's Show is really cool. Um, that's a huge show. That's the biggest uh show that just anybody can come to that is uh that's west of the mississippi it's a massive show there's all kinds of cool boats and you know lots of guides and outfitters there uh yeah it, you know trade shows are interesting and you'll you'll definitely come away from one having met somebody that that is going to play a role in your life at some point in the future and that's really valuable heck yeah i that's one of the like all the, all the gear and gadgets and all that stuff is great, but man, going, going in those giant showrooms, man, and just being in the same place with, with that many like-minded people is just, to me that it's, it's like, it's like heaven. You know what I mean? It feels, it feels good knowing that there's a lot of us. Yeah, dude. It's, it's just an amazing experience, you know, and you get to shake hands and, you know, and, and the, the, the interesting part of it is the, the social media aspect, right? Social media gets slammed so much, but, but to be able to walk up to a person that you've had conversations with, you know, via DM or whatever, and actually go up and, I mean, that's how we came face to face, right. And, and go up and shake their hand and look them square in the eye, man. It's, it's just the greatest thing, dude. I I'm excited for this year, especially missing last year with the whole crap. Yeah, me too. Me too. And so back to the elk. Oh yeah. So give us some background or give the folks some background on, uh, what you've done on six ranch and, and the fecal studies and things like that and why you did that. And, and, and kind of some of the data that you, that you guys were able to, to gain there and, and how that plays an important role in the management and uh, decisions you guys make on the ranch for them. Sure. Yeah. And, and actually that, that was on a, that was on a different piece of property that I was consulting for and that I do some guiding on. Um, the six ranch, man, we've got elk in the winter time when they're really hard up the mountains and the wolves and the lions really get after them and they want to come down here and find it, find a place to hide. But I've never seen an elk here, uh, during a traditional hunting season last year, there were some cow elk, a, a big herd of cows that came down when it was, you know, 20 below zero or something. And, 
uh, I woke up and I actually woke up a little bit late and I came out and looked out my window and I saw this big swath of tracks going out across the hillside and some fences were down like, Oh, that's obviously elk. And, uh, by the time I caught up with them there on the neighbor's place, all I had was cow tag and I shot an elk and, um, my uncle doesn't live too far away and he heard the shot and looked out there. And next thing I know, he's, he's rolling out there with a backhoe and picks the elk up. And it was, a it was so different from like the, the sort of, you know, backcountry more, more hardcore hunts that I usually do. I loved it. Um, so got that elk taken care of and, uh, gave all the meat to my, my little sister and her, and her husband, her little boys and, um, her, her older son, my nephew, um, Hank, the first words, uh, he ever said, uh, that I could understand was, uh, elk meat. Um, and I, I think that that's pretty cool. And it's still, it's still his favorite food. He'll tell you elk meat every time, but the, the stuff that you're talking about, I was really trying to understand what the nutritional requirements were for an elk. Like what are the requirements of this animal? And I couldn't find it in literature anywhere. And I talked to uh, the the biologists at the at the Starkey Experimental Forest, um, which is in Northeast Oregon, and that's where the bulk of Rocky Mountain elk research has occurred. It's this massive, uh, high fenced Forest Service uh, area facility where they can do all kinds of research. Really interesting stuff. They didn't know, so I was like, man, I guess I'm going to have to figure it out on my own. So what it came down to was going out and, and, uh, picking up pieces of poop and sending them off to a lab to, to see what was in there and then going out and, and actually picking plant samples and then seeing what the nutritional qualities of those plants were at different times of year. And then taking soil samples from, from every different soil type on the ranch to see what the mineral qualities were. And then on the animals that we, that we killed, we would take uh, two lower teeth and send those off to a lab. And that would tell us how old the animal was. If, if we got the data back on age and it looked weird based on like body weight or something like that, like if, if they said, oh, this bull's nine years old, be like, nah, that doesn't quite check out. Why don't you go ahead and check the other tooth? And um, if it came back the same, great. And usually it was a more senior scientist that would look at a, at a second tooth. Um, and then we take liver tissue samples as well, send those off to another lab. And a liver tissue sample is interesting because a blood sample can tell you what's in your system right now. But a liver tissue sample can tell you what's been going on for the last nine months. Um, and then we can see how this stuff changes throughout time. So we've got the minerals coming from the soil that express themselves in the vegetation a little bit. We've got the nutritional quality in these different vegetation samples. And then we've got the fecal samples to tell what they've actually been eating. And then every animal that, that we can, we get a, a live weight from, um, which is actually their, their dead weight, but they're, they're still intact. Their guts are in, all that stuff. We hang them up on a scale, sure enough scale. And we look at, at what they weigh then, and then we skin them, cut their, their head and legs off and get their guts out. And then we get their hanging weight, um, and see what that percentage is. And then we can also get a meat yield. So after we take all the meat off the bones, you know, how much actual muscle mass was on this animal and what, what's their bone quality like. 
there's some steps that you could take even further, which would be to cut the fat off of the kidneys and weigh that kidney fat. The more kidney fat an animal has, the healthier it is, point blank. So that's another another thing that we could do that we don't. Um, and that's mostly just in the interest of of time because I'm trying to to get this meat taken care of as cleanly and as quickly as possible and, and get it in a cooler and, and cooling off. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of what we did. And, and we came up with, with what we thought were the nutritional requirements of an elk um, for this population in this area. And there's still some gaps, but it really did help me understand kind of that, that bigger picture. And when it, you know, when it all came down to it, I was able to say, okay, these are the plants that they're targeting at this time of year. These plants are growing in this soil type on this aspect. So which way the, the hillside is facing at this time of year. So these are the places that I should go look for elk um, and, and find them and expect to find them. Uh, I, can, I can give you and your listeners one of the absolute most golden nuggets out there. Um, that, that I've come across. And that is that in this area, the vegetation that holds elk um, consistently during archery season grows out of a soil type called Tolo, T-O-L-O. And you can find maps for Tolo and you can overlay those maps on Google Earth and uh, you've got a pretty good idea that there's going to be some elk standing in that place. Wow. So what were the, if you don't mind disclosing, if you, if you have that to memory, what were the nutritional requirements, if you will? Um, oh, it, it's, 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 it's too complicated for, for me to remember or recite because especially the minerals, right? Because they need, they need like, somewhere between nine and 12 parts per million of copper. They need manganese, they need selenium. You know, you could go through the entire list of minerals and they need different levels of that. Salt actually, you know, they want, but they don't necessarily need. Um, so they have a big salt drive. And I think the reason is that whenever they can find salt naturally, it's gonna coexist with a bunch of these other minerals that they do need. Um, so really, when it comes down to it, they need fiber and they need protein and they need a, a large mix of minerals in order to be healthy. And, and the minerals tend to be a really critical part of that. And that's just the nutrition side. So then if I want to, to do more for these animals, I need to think about ways to improve habitat. And okay, let's look at the plants that they're benefiting the most from. And that is both the things that they're eating and then the things that provide them cover and escapement, like what is the density of timber that they need? Um, so they probably need about 30% of, of their area um, to be timbered and the rest of it to be open. That's a really good ratio for elk. Uh, if it's the other way around, they can still get by, but that's, that's a little bit thick. Um, you could start looking at, benches, right? Are there flat places on the hillside? Because a, we killed our absolute biggest bull elk that we've ever killed this year by weight. It was 805 pounds, live weight, hanging on a scale. Massive, massive bodied animal. Okay. 
a great big cow, a huge cow is going to be in the high five hundreds. So let's say we've got a big bull and a big cow. Um, gosh, that's a lot of weight to be, uh, you know, doing it on a steep hillside. They need a flat piece of ground. They don't need a lot of flat ground, but they need some flat ground in order to, to, uh, you know, do their thing in September. And that's part of why benches are so important. Um, they also need thermal cover and thermal cover means different things, different times of year. So in the winter time, most of the heat loss that an elk experiences is called long wave radiation loss. And that's just heat that comes out of their body and goes into the atmosphere. If they can get in tight trees like lodgepole, um, then they actually get some insulative value from being in that tight timber, even though it's not insulation the way we think of it, like wrapping a blanket around ourselves or something like that, but it does help. And then in the summertime, they need shade because an elk does really well at like 30 to 20 degrees Fahrenheit. So if it's getting really hot, they're spending a lot of their energy just staying cool. And if they can stay in the shade, great. That's why they love, part of why they love being in wallows and swimming. They love to swim. If elk had fins, they'd be fish. Um, so all of that is, is, is part of the picture of like building out their habitat. And then how do you reduce stress for the animals? Well, um, what stresses them? They, they got to be able to eat. They got to have something to drink. They've got to stay the right temperature. They would prefer to not get eaten or chased by predators. So if you can either increase or decrease those things to make their lives easier, um, then you're going to have an animal that's more relaxed and can spend more of its energy on say growing antler, um, than it is on just surviving from day to day. So, so the, the second golden nugget, right? If you, if you take everything you just said and put that and a guy is out there looking, we really need to be concerned with call it the best economics for the elk is essentially yeah. what that amounts to. Right. Uh, when we take everything that James said and we put that all in, in, in one basket, you know, where are you going to find the best economics? Where are they going to be successful? Call it, you know, 80% of the time in one area with, with all those facets, uh, so nugget number two. Uh. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's a really complex Venn diagram, right? And there's there's one that you can find called the Umwelt. And it's it's a German word. I'm not even really sure what it means, but it's U-M-W-E-L-D-T. And the Umwelt is everything that can affect the animal. And it looks like this really crazy diagram with, you know, parasites. It's, it's everything. It's everything that can affect the animal. And that's their whole world as far as we understand it. And if you can line up those, those stars, if you can, uh, have you heard of the Swiss cheese model? That's a better way to think about it. Okay. So Swiss cheese has got weird holes in it all throughout. So let's say I, I cut up this whole block of Swiss cheese and then I shuffle the slices of cheese, like it's a deck of cards and turn some around the holes are no longer going to line up, but if I can get it so that those holes do line up, then I can understand, okay, this is perfect. And, and that's what I'm talking about. So if you can find that place that has um, relief from predators, it's got the right amount of timber. It's got the right type of vegetation for them to eat. It's got recording in um, progress. No, you're good.
Um, it's got, you know, just everything that, that, that the animal needs to be comfortable and successful and survive. And depending on the type of year, it means that they can have, have a calf there and their calf will survive. It means that they can escape predators. Um, just, just all of the things I'm starting to repeat myself, but if you can figure it all out and you can put it on a map, then elk will be there. It, it is a sure enough thing and they will be there. And then if you can understand things like how the wind comes through that area and where the elk are during different times of day, based on when the wind is moving in different directions, then it's as easy as walking in there, making the right sounds and a bull is going to come over there and give you the opportunity to put him inside of a backpack. So I'm going to jump back to Umvelt um, because I had to, I had to know exactly what it is. Um, did I get it right? Yes. I was trying to do that from memory. Yeah, you did. You did. So Umvelt uh, means environment or surroundings is the biological foundations that lie at the very epicenter of the study of both communication and signification. Uh, in the human and non-human or animal world, the term is usually translated as self-centered world. And That's I'll, heavy. Yeah, I'll get into that some more. That was uh, as fast as I could do it off of Wikipedia, but I always <laughs> I hit that Wikipedia, man. I got to check again. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, cool. What a what a what a interesting rabbit hole it is right and in and of all the rabbit holes we go down as as hunters I, I feel like you know these these things uh that matter to the animal we we neglect them because we want what matters to us right right and and i think that to a point and i can't say i think to a point that plays into success right because we're so worried about you know, the, 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 the human part of things and, and making it ours and understanding it from a place where it makes us excited and happy, man, I, I hear this stuff and, and yeah, it can, it can be a little bit confusing, but man, it doesn't take much to sit down, you know, as much time as we spend, you know, goofing or wasting time to get into some of this stuff. And it's just amazing, man. I mean, if you look at, if you look at just the aspect of, of, you know, them being able to go from, you know, choke cherry service, you know, service berry, bitter brush, any broadleaf and, and really understand why that's there and, and how diverse that animal is, man. It, it's just, it's freaking astounding, dude. It makes me love them even more. Yeah. And you landed on a couple of really important browse species there being uh service berry and choke cherry. If you can find those dude, like you're in a good spot because elk want to be there too. Probably bears also, but yeah. <laughs> um, elk definitely want to want to be in there. Yeah, those those uh, the chokes, man. Anytime you find that, and and I haven't had any. I've seen elk sign at the chokes, but I have not seen anything but bear at them to this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Most of the time, I regret not having anything in my uh, in my pocket for the bears. Dude, it's it's worth talking about that, um, and. You know, a, a lot of people are are aware of what happened to me this year, but for those who aren't, you know, I was blood trailing an elk for a client and I had lost blood after, I don't know, two or 300 yards. And I saw some ravens and, you know, we call them search and rescue birds. 
And I thought, well, you know, maybe they found him. And a lot of times they'll find him quick. I, I've seen uh, magpies land on deer that were still wounded, that were shot, you know, 30 seconds earlier because they can identify already that the animal is about to be food. Um, so that whole that whole family of birds, um, crows, ravens, magpies, etc. They're very, very smart, super, super smart birds. Um, so I thought, well, maybe the ravens found him. I, I at least have to go down there and check. And I go down and the ravens are circling around and I'm trying to figure out exactly kind of what the epicenter of this commotion is. And as I walk in, I smell like dead, like old dead. And, and that smell is a, is an organic molecule compound called, um, ethyl mercaptan. And it's, it's a human's strongest sense of smell is, is rotting flesh. And anthropologists think of it in a couple different ways. One is that maybe we used to be scavengers and two, it's a way of knowing that something is dead in the area, probably caused by another predator and that we need to be alerted to it. So I smell that and I don't deal well with that. Um, I actually bring, uh, like Vicks vapor rub with me in case somebody gut shoots something, I'll stick that in my nose and, and then I can deal with gut shot stuff. So I'm, you know, heaving a little bit from it, but I still, obviously this isn't the elk that got shot this morning that I'm trying to find, but I still want to know what it is. So I'm working into the wind, right? Trying to narrow it down and I'm getting close. And thankfully I was alert um, because out of this thicket of pines, pops this bear and it like lunges a couple times pins its ears and charges flat out and i freaking drew my pistol and i shot and i hit it in the chest and it kind of made this like roar noise and it spun around and i shot again and it it killed it right there so both shots went in its chest the second shot took off the bottom of its heart and it was just dead um wasn't a big bear not saying that but i don't really want any size bear to, to come (laughs) like, you know, I, I'm just not into that. If, if, if my fiance's house cat decides to jack me up, it's, I'm going to bleed by the time it's over with. Okay. And certainly with a bear, but it was on, it ended up, um, it was on this dead bull elk. Um, it was early season. This bull just had a little bit of velvet left on it. I'm guessing that it died around August 20th based on videos and pictures that I'd seen from other elk and kind of timelines and whatever. So around August 20th, this, this elk had died. Uh, I don't know whether a lion killed it, whether this bear killed it, whether wolves killed it, probably not wolves because you know, the rib cage was still intact and some stuff like that, but it was just protecting this kill and that's why it acted aggressively. But man, if I had not had that SIG 10 mil on me, I, I would have gotten hurt by a bear. Um, and if I'd not practiced with it and, and had a degree of proficiency in luck, I would have gotten hurt by that bear. And, uh, you know, a lot of people wrote me afterwards and like, Hey, you know, I've been carrying my pistol in my pack. Sometimes I don't bring it. You really made me rethink this. And I just want to sort of remind everybody, I'm not trying to scare you, but I do want to remind you that, you know, there's things that can go wrong out there and it can happen really quickly. And I just, I really do encourage you to, um, to keep a gun on you and, and know how to use it. Uh, chambered when it was holstered. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah, sure. You you know, you're, you're not going to have time to rack the slide. Um, and it's got a safety. It's not going to go off if you don't pull the trigger. It, it's okay to, to have it chambered. You know, this was a, a SIG P220, so it's a hammer gun. Hammer's cocked. The safety's on. Um, and it's inside of a, a holster where the trigger is completely protected. It's not going to go off and, unless I want it to. Um, but, yeah, you, you've you've really got to be ready. Um and I'm, I'm not advocating against bear spray or anything like that. You know, science has proven that bear spray is, is normally effective. Um, it's certainly a lot easier to spray accurately with bear spray than it is with a handgun. But gosh, uh, things, things sure can happen. Um, and if, if you're in a place that has elk, chances are you're sharing that place with some things that eat elk. And if it's capable of killing an elk, it's capable of killing you. Absolutely, man. So, I'm gonna poke at you a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I know, I know, you know, Captain James Nash and, um, you know, I watch, I watch videos and, you know, like you on your jet boat or something. Right. And I'm like, that motherfucker makes everything just look cool. You know, <laughs> like just looks cool. You mean to tell me that you gotta, you gotta use vapor rub under your nose on a gut shot, man. That is one of my favorite smells is, is when, I'm, I'm gutting an animal and I'm not sure yeah. why, but I, I absolutely love it. Um, yeah. You know, so to hear that, it was kind of, I was a little taken back, but it was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. You know, there, there's a couple things that, that often surprise people about me. One is that I can't handle the smell of guts. Um, and I think part of it is, you know, I was around enough, um, enough people that were hurt really badly when I was, when I was in Afghanistan, um, people guts and, and elk guts end up actually smelling pretty similar. And so that's a little bit hard on me. And then the other one that really surprises people, um, is I have no sense of direction. Like I can get lost in a city park. Um, and I, like my best friend, you could put him inside of a washing machine in a dark padded room and he would come out of it and tell you which way North is. I can never, I never know. Um, and a lot of times I'll look at a compass or my phone or whatever and be like, nah, this ain't right. And, uh, to make it even worse, dude, um, I'm using this, uh, this T and K, uh, vinyl harness this year and I really like it. And I've been super critical of vinyl harnesses for most of my life. I really like this one but it's got a magnet and a flap, right? So if I hold my phone phone. right in front of the (laughs) magnet, it jacks with the compass. And my Onyx has been telling me some weird stuff and I'll like go to base map and then I'll go to go hunt and it's all telling me different stuff. I'm like, man, both of us are lost. This sucks. (laughs) It's uh, I noticed that this year I I was, and I use all three of them too, but I really like that, that Asmus on uh, base maps. I fell in love with that this year. But I would have to remember as I pull my phone out and I turn it on, like I got to get it away from the harness. Yeah. Because it had that magnet and, you know, do it and let it, it'll spin around. And I found if I just kind of turn the phone as I'm moving like this, it'll, it'll catch up to it. Yeah. That magnet definitely throws them. You know, and you can also use um, the SIG rangefinders now with base maps. So in that azimuth feature, so you can like say there's some elk like way up in a basin and you're hunting a new area and you don't really know how to get in there. Like this new 10K range finder, it'll range 10,000 yards on a reflective target. Okay, so these elk are miles away. You range them, you pull out your base map, 
and fix your azimuth. And now you can look at your map and figure out how to get in there. Like how amazing is that? Or you could figure out where the animal is standing when you shot it or like really cool stuff. And that's just, that's old tank tech technology. And I want everything to be a tank again. Um, so, uh, I, I like that, that hunters are starting to be able to access, you know, some of these really cool tools that I had when I was in the military. That, that's an interesting conversation. What's and and I don't think you're have opposition to it, but where, where do we draw the line in the sand? Cause there's been conversation. I don't know if you saw uh, Boone and Crockett's deal that they had just come out with talking about, you know, any GPS type technology, electronics, um, they're, they're not going to be allowing things into the record book. And I thought it was a little bit antiquated, if you will, right? Because we've been advancing, whether it's electronic technology or technology in, in firearms or ammo, the entire time Boone and Crockett has been around. So to see them kind of scoff at it, and I, I get it to a point, but at, at what point do we say, okay, you know, maybe maybe throw on there that it's, you know, air quote, wind assist, um, you know, like they're like they do in the Olympics. What what's your take on where we are with technology in in hunting? I don't want to see the point where we have predictive algorithms that can take into account all the factors that are out there and tell you where an elk is going to stand. I think that that's something that you should learn from research and experience. Um, but any technology that that increases a hunter's lethality and and ensures a quicker and more humane death for that animal. I'm all about. And whenever people oppose that type of technology, um, just because it is tech, uh, I think that, that they're putting more emphasis on their own ego and their ideas about what hunting is for them than they are about, you know, the final moments that the animal experiences and, and the type of anguish that they may or may not experience. So I'm a big fan of, of stuff that, that makes that animal's death quicker and cleaner. Um, I'm not a fan of stuff that, that takes away from the, this really wonderful experience of learning how to predict animal behavior um, through experience and research. You know, if, if you get to the point where, where you turn on your, whatever app it is and it and it takes into account you know all the data that it's harvested from you know millions of hunters phones and says you know you need to be at this stand at this time and you need to look at the left at 5 32 p.m because that's where that buck's going to come from we can get to that point with technology we really can um we need to be careful when that happens um because that will that will hurt that will hurt all of us and it will take away from the joy of not knowing what is going to happen of, of guessing um through through these experiences yeah i definitely would hate to see failure come out of it yeah that's i mean that's for me that's where i've had the most gain right is those struggles and and failing and falling flat on my face and wondering what i did wrong and figuring it out and going from there i did see an app i don't even know if it's around anymore um, maybe, maybe three years ago or so. And it, it basically, uh, you put it like on your, on your phone or like a phone scope or something. Right. And from X distance, you look on there and it would pinpoint where the animals were at. I don't know if you saw that. I forget the name of it. I haven't seen it in a while, 
Um, gotcha. But, but it was really interesting to see that. And I remember me and my buddy looking at it and I'm like, why the hell would you use that? Like, and for me, the words were that, that takes all the fun out of it. Um, yeah. And I don't think it gained traction or there was legalities in it or they ran out of money because those apps were crazy expensive, but something like that even kind of, I don't want to say it bothered me, but it wasn't, it wasn't my, my game. You know, it was, I, I, I couldn't get behind it. Yeah. And uh, you know, stuff that comes up with technology a lot is is like long range shooting and you know these these uh, ballistic computers are very good anymore um applied ballistics elite gosh it's amazing how good it is at at determining how fast a bullet is going to drop and how high you have to aim what isn't out there is how much the wind is going to affect that bullet between you and your target I love long range shooting. I think it's really fun and it's an interesting problem to try and solve. And there's both art and science, um, science being, you know, that, that bullet drop and the art being how much the wind is going to affect it. But I also love hunting up close. And I think that you can do both. And a lot of, a lot of bow hunters forget that if you have a rifle, there's no rule saying that you have to shoot from 300 yards away. Do you want to get to archery range with your gun? Do it. There's nothing stopping you from doing that. And you can really have the same type of experience and feel that you get from a bow hunt with a gun if you just get close. Um, Brad Brooks and I talked about that recently. And, and his stance is that there's something special about the slowness of an arrow and seeing an arrow in flight. And it really makes me think that bow hunting is, is more about the arrow than it is about the bow. And I've, I continue to, to mold that around in the way that, that sort of, we, we experience the hunt based on the projectile, but man, I love getting close and shooting stuff with a gun. I think it's wonderful. You know what? That's funny that you say that. So last year I was, I went to Oklahoma and spent some time with uh, Ron, Ron White and his staff there at DR long range. Right. And to watch, to watch my round, right. To watch that trace, uh, you know, go out 1100 yards and, and tap that steel. That was where I made the biggest connection between archery and long range shooting. You know, when, when you see that thing at apex and it's coming down and it's just like, and it was just, it was the same, it was the same feeling, the same exact feeling. So I, I get the archery part of it, but man, the, the long range aspect of it as well is just, they're like this, they're, they're running, they're running parallel in my opinion. And, and the discipline that they both take, uh, and the, time that they both take to to really perfect the craft in them man i i can't i can't squawk at well i'm definitely not gonna squawk at archery but after that experience shooting like that i'll never squawk at long range again and i was one of the people that would question and and this is this is naivety on my part i would question the ethics in it but are there really ethics in it? If, if you're, you know, you're shooting that animal, it's a, you know, call it a thousand yards away and it's a thousand yards away and that animal drops in his tracks. What's different? You know, if I, I shoot him with a bow from 30 yards and he runs 40 yards and falls down. Um, but that's, you know, to your point, that's where I made the correlation was in the projectile. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I think the big difference for me is time of flight. And I'll give you an example. 
Um, I shot at a bear in Idaho uh, last year and we were filming it and it was 310 yards away. And I was shooting 150 grain projectile going 2,830 feet per second. So pretty fast. And the BC was, was over 500. Um, so it wasn't shedding velocity all that quickly. I shot when the bear was broadside and static. And while the bullet was in flight on that 310 yard shot, that bear swiveled around 180 degree, 80 degrees and had taken a step and was no longer anywhere near. So it was an absolute clean miss. And I didn't know that in shooting, of course, because I shot and, and expected the bear to drop and it didn't. And as it was running away up the hill, I took another shot and I happened to heart shoot it, which was lucky. I would not have taken that shot if I didn't think that I had probably already wounded that bear. But, you know, upon review of the footage, we learned that, you know, it was a good shot. It was going right where it should have been, but the bear was no longer there. And that was on a 310 yard shot on a thousand yard shot. You have four times, maybe five times as long for that animal to move and you don't know when they're going to move. So that's something that really complicates it. And then wind, man, wind is everything on those longer shots. And the, the, the more you shoot long range, um, the more you'll understand that a little bit of wind changes everything. The other one that I think is important to talk about is target speed. So every one mile per hour, that a target is moving is basically the equivalent of 15 miles an hour of wind. So if you didn't know if the wind was blowing 15 or 30, you probably wouldn't take that shot. But that's the difference of knowing whether it's walking one mile an hour or two miles an hour, which nobody can do. Okay. It's really, really hard. So don't take, don't take moving shots because it's too hard you're probably going to get it wrong and you need to shoot a lot in the wind just so that you can understand how hard it actually is. Yeah. Cause, yeah. You know, dialing, dialing that, uh, that elevation turret is one thing, but man, I mean, and, and there's so many factors in the wind, right? I mean, just, it just, just go half value. You know what I mean? A full value. Sure. What does that do? Right. It's, it's gonna, it's gonna change your, your point of impact. It's just that the LR and if the wind is coming from the right versus the left, that changes how much your bullet is going to drop. It's wild. It's a wild world. It's really fun. So I'm not criticizing long range shooting at all. I am criticizing people who hit a target at 600 yards on their home range in July. And then they have the confidence to be able to go out and do that on the mountain when they're tired and uncomfortable and don't have a bench to shoot off of, and they don't understand the wind. And, you know, that's, that's when a lot of problems occur. I, so I think that's a judgment thing, right? I mean, or I don't want to say, a, yeah, it's a, it's a judgment call, right? So consistently with, with my weapon in the round I was shooting 980 yards was my money. Right. I could hit out to, I think we went out to 1260 and I could hit the target one. I didn't like the length of time it took <laughs> to get down yeah. there. Um, but that 980, it was 986 yards, right. And, and a three inch flapper, I was able to hit it shot after shot, after shot, after shot. That's amazing. And if I had to go on a hunt the next day after that, with all that confidence, I would have reeled that in a couple hundred yards. 
Um, because there's a difference. There needs to be a difference when we're shooting paper, steel, whatever it is, you know, a rock practicing, um, that, I mean, unless you're out there, like I watch Ron, Denise, Hunter, Brian, all those guys shoot out there and they are, that's, that's the level that, that people would aspire to be at. I mean, they are that proficient. And I even, I know that they reel their shots in like they're, you know, they're 1300 yards, dude. And it's like, ping, 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 ping. It's like, goodness, man, how in the world? And this is something yeah. they do all the time, but they're reeling that yardage in on, on animals. Right. And it's, you know, it's a static animal, like you were saying. Yeah. Let me ask you this. If, if I, if I kidnapped you and threw you in a van and drove you out someplace and you don't know what the weather conditions are going to be outside. And I say, all right, you've got a, a, a 10 inch plate. Um, and you're going to bet $10,000. How far, like what's your max distance that you're going to bet $10,000 that you can hit that plate. If you don't know what the weather is outside talking about wind, not fog. Damn it's going to be within, within four or 500 yards. Yeah. I'm saying 200 yards, 200 yards. I'm going to hit that thing. 300 yards. I might lose 10 grand. I, and, and the reason I say that, so my, my Island buck this year, he was at like 480 and uh, it was nasty uphill the, the, on that Island. If you're, if you're down in a draw up on top is totally different. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to pat myself on the back. I'm pretty goddamn good when it comes to wind, right? And looking through my looking through my optic, seeing what the wind is doing at my target and then making a judgment call. And I punched him right where I would punch him. So I would say 500 and under, I'm okay with. Um that that nice. be my that be my max. I'd, cool. I'd love well, to I've be got, able to say 980. <laughs> I, I've got some 10 inch plates out here. So the next time you, you, you come out, we'll put one at 500 yards and, yeah. and see what happens. I'll hit it. I'll hit it. I, okay. uh, man, that, yeah, that, that LR stuff, I'm actually supposed to go back in March. Hopefully I can make it because I want to get into the, into the second round of that and, and just keep learning. Um, the problem is, is ammo for us is so crazy right now, man. I could last year took me six months to find ammo. Um, yeah, we have to take it's hard for me rounds. too, man. Yeah. It's hard for me too. And I'm sponsored by a company that makes it and that, that doesn't necessarily matter, you know, and the, like, that's a reality that folks got to understand that, you know, people think, Oh, you can get all the ammo you want. It's like, no, I can't. I'm, I'm in the same boat as everybody else. It's hard. It is rough right now. They, uh, I got a call yesterday asking, you know, Hey, did you shoot that scope? And I'm like, Nope, stop, but no ammo. What do you mean? No yeah. ammo. I, I got 20. I put it, this scope on my, on my 30 odd six. And I'm like, I got 20, 30 odd six rounds. That's, that's hunting rounds, man. I can't go, you know, I can't do anything uh, with that 20 rounds. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's just a, it's a bad spot. I hope that catches up. I, I heard that they've been saying that they don't think that they'll see a, a catch up in that until sometime mid 2023. Which is it's hard, hard to know. Yeah. It's pretty, it's hard to know. You know, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of factors that go, that go into that. And, uh, and one of the biggest ones is we don't know what consumers are going to do. Um, you know, and sort of the perfect storm of like riots and COVID and, um, and in increased interest in hunting and shooting all that converged. And we had millions of new, like first time gun owners throughout the country, millions of them. 
a million is a huge number, dude. Like people don't, don't understand. If you stack up a million dimes, that goes from the bottom of the Grand Canyon to the top, right? A million is a big ass number. And we had multiple millions of, of brand new gun owners, all of whom were buying ammo. Um, and then a bunch of previous gun owners who were trying to buy even more ammo. So that's, that scarcity increased rapidly, rapidly. It's oh, wild. And then it was a feeding frenzy, right? I mean, you get on gun broker and you try to buy a box that you were paying, you know, 50, $60 for it was, I saw them upwards of 120 bucks for 20 rounds. And it yeah. Was just, and man, wow. that's, that's not cool. And I saw a lot of people do that with beef and, you know, for, foremost, a six ranch is a cattle ranch. And we didn't do that to people. We're not going to gouge people on beef just because it's harder to come by. Um, I'm not going to risk losing a customer next year just so that I can make a couple extra bucks this year. That doesn't make any sense. Dude, and that that coriander beef is some of the best freaking beef I've ever had. Oh, thanks, buddy. Oh, man. So, all right, back to elk for a moment. Yeah, <laughs> sure. So if you had to look a guy in the face and, and, and say, Hey, this, this is what you should be focused on. If you're wanting to gain or elevate your knowledge of elk and it doesn't necessarily need to be hunting proficiency, right? Um, what would be, what would be the things you tell them to go and focus on? Wind. Learn, learn how, learn how an elk smells, learn how they move based on what the wind is doing, learn how to predict what the wind is going to do, um, given your current atmospheric conditions. So what's going on with the storm, you know, high pressure, low pressure, what's the predominant wind? What's, what's the terrain doing? Where's the sun hitting? Like what, what is the vegetation doing to the wind? Learn if you can be an expert in wind, I don't care if you know nothing else about the animal, that is their greatest strength. And if you can beat it, it becomes their greatest vulnerability. Um, uh, predator prey dynamics, um, the role of olfaction. Yep. That that's, that's the book to read. And it, uh, it will, change your life as a hunter it okay so i'm going to qualify because people will be po'd um when they get into that book it's a dry read it is sure it is a dry read it is hard for a layman um to sit down and you're excited and i was excited when you i mean you told me about that book two or three years ago and i was excited to sit down and read it and you read it and it's just like holy right and but it's so important to sit through because a lot of what we hear, you know, when we talk elk, mule deer is, you know, thermals. What are the thermals doing in the morning? What are the thermals doing in the evening? And it's, you know, it's simple. It's so simplified. It goes back to what I said earlier, right? We want it in in something that we can understand, right? Um, man, when you get into, I, I had no idea that what they were smelling was basically dead skin. Right. I mean, yeah. you know, I, yeah. I there there's things in there that just stand out to me. And it was just like, man, it is it is a little bit of a tough read when you get going into it, but it is so worth it. It'll give you a such a different understanding or a different look on how you approach the wind when you get out on, on the pursuit. So 
Um, and then James host uh, Six Ranch Podcast. You guys check that out. James, why don't you drop uh, where folks can find you um, before we wrap it, man? Sure. Um, so you can you can follow along on Instagram. That's Six Ranch Outfitters or Six Ranch Podcast. It's number six. Um, sixranch.com. You know, it's all it's all kind of part of the same family there. And uh, yeah, gosh, th- if if you're listening to guys' podcast, you've got everything you need, right? But if you feel like you want a little a little bit of something different, you can come check my show out. But uh, you're already in a good place. You're in good hands right here. And I'm appreciative of of all of you guys for listening to this show and and encourage you to keep listening and and let this let this be a catalyst for learning and for improvement because that learning and improvement is going to put you in a place where you can have experiences that will be with you for the rest of your life that that you'll tell your grandchildren and will be part of their lives like that these are important things it's important about who we are as people it's about who we are as a community and an improvement and just being part of part of this community um, is so important. So you're in good hands right here. And, and I appreciate all of you. I appreciate that, brother. You guys go listen to Six Ranch. It's definitely worth it. Um, Buck doesn't stop here. Uh, we got to support, you know, folks like James that are spreading uh, knowledge and his learned experience and the folks he talks to. Um, just just great podcast there. All right, my brother. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Thank you.